This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think when you look at a person who is seeking gender-affirming care, it's for themselves. No one else is harmed. They're helping themselves. And I think what's so important is that they were going out of the country to have care. And what we see is, and, and even in, in our practice, these surgeries often have high complication rates. And I think that's because we're in the process of making them better. But I think it's so important that if we don't support the care, then patients will continue to get inadequate care. And that I think is much more costly to society. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Jennifer Anger from UC San Diego Department of Urology. Welcome to the show, Jen. How are you doing this morning? Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, really a pleasure to have you. And it's been a real treat to kind of follow the groundbreaking work that you're doing in the area of transgender medicine and gender reassignment surgery. Really looking forward to just kind of picking your brain on your journey as you've expanded into this uh, important area. And maybe I'll just start out with a brief anecdote that I had recently to kind of kick things off. I was actually in clinic recently and saw a patient with prostate cancer and to be honest, I wasn't quite clear how the patient identified. It wasn't obvious to me. And I found myself a little nervous, feeling a little bit awkward. You know, historically, when I've spoken about prostate cancer, I say men and things along those lines. And at the conclusion of our visit, it dawned on me that I wish I'd just asked and clarified and confirmed what the patient's preferences were. So I suspect that many providers may feel ignorant, nervous, some component of fear when it comes to the topic of transgender patients, that they don't want to say something that's wrong, hurtful, inappropriate, or offensive. Absolutely. And maybe could I just have you kind of comment on that broadly? Yes, I think it's so important to find out from the patient how they would like to be called. And often what we say is, my pronouns are she and her, may I ask your pronouns? Or even what we find, and sometimes, and we see this a lot, although UC San Diego Health has made great strides in making our electronic health record friendly to gender, non-binary, and transgender people, but sometimes the name won't necessarily be correct in a medical record. So what we find is just to say, what would you like me to call you, or how, how do you like to be called? And that's a really good way to start the conversation. And I think certain things that can happen is people at any point can, what's, it's called misgendering. If they, a patient is basically called a name they don't want to be called, or they're referred to as ma'am when they're transmasculine person, it's important that there is some training of staff at the front office, not just in the back office. And if there's care to do it right, I think you're on the right track. But in someone who you're not sure if they're non-binary or not, I think asking, just asking what their pronouns are and how you like to be called, and they'll usually give you the information that you need. Got it. And 
I think that takes us right into maybe we could just start out with the lexicon, the terminology when talking about transgender patients, gender reassignment, surgery. I think there's historical terminology that's likely outdated or a bit offensive. And then there's, you know, more contemporary terminology. Do you mind just kind of running through the most common terms that we can expect to interface with patients that are transgender, non-binary? Absolutely. So a transgender woman is a woman and is transitioning to be a woman. A transgender man is a man in the transition process would be transitioning to be a man. And pronouns are really a personal preference. So what you don't want to do is say, well, what are you really, you know, what is, what are you, what's your real sex? Cause they're like, that's not, that would be a form of sort of misgendering. So the term now is assigned male at birth. So what you were, the genitals that you had at birth are considered what you're assigned at birth. And then what you, your internal expression of your gender identity is what you would be called. So a transgender man identifies as a man. If they were assigned female at birth or born as a girl, that's what we call it, what they're assigned at birth. And then pronouns, a transgender woman could say she, her, but if they are transgender, sometimes they will say they. And that can be a little tricky, especially if, you know, many of us who do a lot of writing are like when you talk to a singular person as they and you say they are Jennifer, for example. And then it's hard because it's grammatically, you know, not what we learn in, in grade school, but it is referring to one person using they are a transgender boy or girl. And so I think the most important thing is to avoid certain terms that are considered to be, I guess, outdated and also not as affirming for people. So a transsexual, that was sort of an old term that's been replaced with transgender. You don't say transgendered. There's no ED at the end when you're using it as an adjective. And then there are some other ways to describe. Some people use like Zer with a Z or or with an X, and, and that's not as common, and that gets pretty tricky for people who aren't that familiar with the terminology. Okay, so I'm just going to kind of maybe run through some of the terms that I've come across preparing for this uh, episode and have you give a two seconds on it. So cisgender. So many of us who have a science background remember the molecule with two moieties on the same side of the carbon bond. And that's called cis. And then trans is if you have these moieties that are across the carbon bond, which are called trans. So a cis person is someone who is, let's say, for example, me, born female, and I identify as female. And not speaking for you, but you would be considered a cis man. You're born a boy. You consider yourself a man. And so that would be considered someone who is not transgender or non-binary, for example. And just to add, non-binary is a way of describing someone who may not fall on one end or the other of a spectrum. So some people have some feminine characteristics, some masculine characteristics, and they don't necessarily feel a need to identify as a cis man, a cis woman, or a trans man or a trans woman, that there is sort of some fluidity with that. Okay. And actually, those touch on a couple of the terms that I've come across, including 
gender non-conforming, gender fluidity, and gender queer. So those are all sort of different terms that describe someone who is not confined to one end of the spectrum or the other. So not necessarily feeling a need to be one or the other. And we see that, and I think that's becoming more accepted. And so it just implies that someone is not necessarily on one end of the spectrum or the other. And that's separate from gender dysphoria. Yes. So gender dysphoria is the psychological distress that results from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity. And so that is important because if someone is born in a society that accepts gender diversity, they may not necessarily have dysphoria. And I think dysphoria results from not being able to express their identity freely and also having to be in a society where there's a great amount of stigma and marginalization. And that, I think, definitely contributes to dysphoria. Thanks, Jen. So if I may, I think that the things that I'm hearing is you're always going to be better off asking. Assuming avoiding is probably not the way to go. And that actually the kind of accepted terminology is finite and highly digestible in terms of first off, sex assigned at birth would be the appropriate way to discuss how a person was born without being offensive. The transgender male or female with the male or female indicating their associated identified gender as it stands. And then several words nuanced for people and patients that don't really kind of see themselves as male or female as they're kind of identifying. Is that accurate? Yeah, it it is accurate. Usually when we talk about a transgender person, it almost makes it more confusing to say male, female. We usually will say transgender man, transgender woman, but absolutely. And sometimes if they've been living in their preferred gender a long time, you know, I have a patient who's like, I don't even really consider myself transgender woman. I'm a woman. I mean, she's had, you know, been living as a woman for such a long time. She doesn't even really see herself as transgender anymore. Okay. So, you know, you're starting your practice here and maybe just kind of walk us through your intake of a new patient that is seeking out gender reassignment or having struggles with gender dysphoria. How would you even describe it? I mean, this is, you know, not to display my ignorance here, but a patient that's interested in, you know, non-typical gender options. Sure. So, um, and usually, and that's another terminology. So we don't usually say reassignment anymore or sex change. It's now usually termed gender affirming surgery. And so I think it's important to know that to transition, there are no requirements. It's very individualized. So someone can, let's say a transgender woman can say, I want to be a woman. And she then begins to live as a woman. And that would be her transition. And you don't really need to do anything else other than that. But most people will have hormones to start. So the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, it's called WPATH. 
does have set criteria for gender affirming surgery. And so as a urologist, my focus is on gender affirming pelvic surgery and the requirements are having hormonal therapy for a year at least and living in one's preferred gender for at least a year. And then they need to have two letters from mental health providers that support their transition and also that support that the patient is ready for that. And what's important is even though we talk about gender diversity as not being a pathology, insurance is more likely to cover surgeries with this diagnosis code of gender dysphoria. So we still use that term quite a bit. So most of the time, I'll see patients who have been on hormones already. And just a little bit of background. So what are the hormones? For a transgender woman, it's usually estrogen and then often with a testosterone blocker. Like in Canada, they use cyproterone. Usually here, spironolactone is used. And then some will get an orchiectomy to help reduce their need for testosterone and also avoid the need for blockers. But we also see orchiectomy as part of gender-affirming pelvic surgery, so vaginoplasty, vulvoplasty, et cetera. So I'm going to actually ask you to back up just a second. So where does the journey start? I mean, typically, maybe even starting with, is there a common age where it's becoming evident to a set of parents or to a person interested in gender reassignment that these options start getting explored? I mean, have you kind of, is there a described or typical age that the onset of either not identifying with their sex at birth starts taking place? That's a really important question. And I had the opportunity to shadow some of our great doctors at Rady Children's. They have an adolescent medicine center that's focused on gender care. And a lot of kids will explore. Many times a boy will put on a dress or vice versa. Girl will dress like a boy. And that's not necessarily indicative of any gender dysphoria. Where we see it more is in adolescence. And if it looks like there's a strong and persistent gender dysphoria, then hormones can be started early. Usually after puberty, hormones are begun. So we see a lot of that in teenage populations. And in some, what's been given is what's called puberty blockade. So you start at a tanner stage, so after puberty starts, and then they're put on puberty blockers so that they don't, for example, a transgender girl won't have to have a deepening of her voice or develop an Adam's apple, for example. And so what can happen, though, is if they are locked, let's say a transgender girl has puberty blockade, and then she's given estrogen later, then the testicle is not likely to develop sperm. And there's some, we don't have a lot of information on sexual function. And so it's proven to truly help gender dysphoria, but there's a lot of unknowns that we as urologists can really start doing some good research to understand long-term outcomes of puberty blockade. So typically, is the initial kind of interfacing with the medical infrastructure going to be psychiatrists, psychologists, endocrinologists? Who are the parts of the multidisciplinary team? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and also, to date, you know, the average transgender 
or gender affirming surgery in California was for vaginoplasty was age almost 39. So just shy of 39. So most of the time these are, we see now adults, but some of this is because they were not able to live freely previously. So I think we're going to see people at younger ages seeking care. But usually there's specialists who manage hormones and often it can be endocrinology. Often it's a, a primary care doctor who has a passion for this. And even like we have at our Owen clinic, Jill Blumenthal, who I work with closely, she's actually, her background is in infectious diseases. She's become our go-to primary care doctor who manages hormones at patients. So I think you see usually primary care, many do have an endocrinologist who help with hormonal management. Okay. And I think as you mentioned, it probably, you know, depending on what the patient is seeking, it can go from ENTs that are involved in facial feminization or facial masculization, plastic surgeons, I would imagine, for various reconstructive procedures, endocrinologists, mental health providers, urologists. And then are there any that I might be missing? Sure, sure. And one thing when you see, if you look at surgery, often chest reconstruction is first. Transgender boys have a lot of dysphoria from growing breasts. So you tend to see mastectomy in transgender boys, often in high school or in early years. And we work closely with plastic surgery. Our um, head of plastic surgery, Amanda Gosman, does quite quite a lot of um, these surgeries. Usually you will see chest surgery and facial surgery before you have sort of the gender-affirming pelvic surgery. So there are quite a lot of people who are involved in the care. I think maybe just to look at it in a, a bit of a binary way for a transgender man, so often mastectomy and hormonal therapy, we have, you know, if they have surgery, then we often will, you know, dermatology is involved or electrolysis. And that's a, an important component to gender affirming surgery for men and women is hair removal because we often use for phalloplasty, we will use skin from the arm. And for vaginoplasty, we use scrotal skin. So that's a process which can take several months of electrolysis or for appropriate candidates, laser. And so that's a whole other element that we don't think of. There's also physical therapy and particularly for voice, for helping one to elevate or lower their voice. For transgender women, it can be hard with a lower voice. So a lot of the time voice therapy can help them to raise their voice. So there's the surgical elements. I think mental health is always very helpful, especially because many do have a history of dealing with stigma, even abuse, and mental health providers can often just help through the transitioning process. Well, that's great. And I think it's, it's nice for me to just kind of have it explained that there's not kind of a one-size-fits-all. You know, it could be as little as, okay, now I'm going to identify as a woman to opposite end of the spectrum where, you know, voice, face, non-pelvic, interventions, you know, kind of on the other end of the spectrum. So I appreciate that. And, and I'm, I would imagine that as the field and the needs continue to evolve, it may even become more expansive. And I, you know, I'm not, I can't forecast who all might be required to get involved, but I, I definitely appreciate that kind of walkthrough. 
And so when you're seeing a patient, I'm just going to maybe naively throw out the questions that I might be asked. Like, when, you know, when did you first feel like you didn't identify with your sex at birth? What all steps have you taken to date? What are your goals as a part of your gender affirming process? You know, I don't know if this is intake that you would typically do or somebody that's going to ultimately refer a patient to you. But, you know, when you're sitting there with a the patient and there may be anywhere along that kind of process, can you talk a little bit about what that intake looks like? Definitely. I think that's a really, you started, you did great, right? I think asking, when did you know you were a woman, for example? When did you start hormonal therapy? A lot of those are just sort of with, with regard to, you know, have they been on it for a year? And what are your goals? And often they'll know what their surgical options are in advance and they'll tell you what they want. And I think it's important to ask about, and some of these are more sensitive questions, right? If someone, a transgender woman may still use their male parts, right? And so you want to know that before you put someone through a surgery where they're no longer going to have a penis, for example. You want to make sure they're not, that they don't use it because you you don't want to remove something that's being used, right? So those are sort of important questions that we do need to ask about. I love the, the example in, in the gender health clinic at, at the Rady Children's Hospital. They'll say, do you have sex with your mouth? Do you have sex with a penis, with a vagina, with an anus? So they just flat out ask those details, but it's sort of important to know what they're using and what they may want to use. What about history of abuse? My, again, prep for this uh, podcast, it kind of came across that the incidence of, you know, physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse is higher in the transgender population. Is that something you, you would ask about? That's a really good question. And in, in, in transgender women, there is a high rate of abuse. There's also you know, they have 49 times the risk of HIV compared to other populations. And there's theories as to why that might be. And there's this theory called syndemics, which is sort of this concatenation of multiple different psychosocial events that could lead one to be at higher risk for HIV, for example. And there's stigma, abuse, sexual abuse, difficulty finding employment, they have a higher rate of, of sex work. And so certain questions like that you want to know and also help to make sure that they are, you know, using safe sex practices, for example, making sure they have the right connections so that they don't have HIV. So I think there's a, it's important to develop rapport. So sometimes I don't want to, if I'm just talking about plans for gender affirming surgery, for example, I don't always ask those kinds of questions on the first visit. And the other thing that's important is you don't always have to do a pelvic exam on the very first visit when you meet someone. We're so used to that in urology. We're like, if you don't do a rectal exam, you did a bad job. You didn't examine their prostate. So it's a little bit of a different way of thinking for us as urologists. It's like, you know, we don't have to do that like the very first visit. Yeah, that's great intel. And that's going to segue quite nicely into the physical exam and doing that in the sensitive and appropriate way. One other aspect that I kind of came across is the concept of an organ inventory. Is that something that you do? You know, do you have a uterus? Do you have ovaries? Do you have a prostate? And maybe that does ultimately 
play into, you know, what are your goals? You know, if you're a transgender male, do you want to have a hysterectomy, ophorectomy, et cetera? Can you just give us a brief organ inventory intake? Yeah, that, that's a good question. You know, I think for a transgender woman, it's important to know that when they have gender affirming surgery, the prostate is going to be there. It's not going to be taken out. So the only thing they would have potentially have had removed would be the testicles, right? So, you know, they're all going to have a prostate. No gender affirming surgery should be, you know, is removing the prostate, at least not one that, <laughs> that I've like seen. And the vaginoplasty surgeries, we preserve sphincters. It's usually sort of mid to distal bulb where the new urethral opening is. And then later for uh, prostate screening, it's actually a vaginal exam. The prostate's right there. So I don't always do an organ inventory in transgender women because it's really, well, you, you are doing an Im inventory, but it's really only going to be the testicles, whether or not they've had an yet. Now for transgender men, it's important to, to know that the vaginectomy is an important consideration in masculinizing surgeries. So the main two surgeries are a phalloplasty, which is creating a phallus from either usually radial forearm, uh, a radial forearm free flap. You can also use an anterior thigh flap. And with those surgeries, most of the time, there's a hysterectomy and with a vaginectomy. Although some patients can have phalloplasty and preser preserve the vaginal canal. So that's really important to note if they wish to preserve the vaginal canal, if they're using the canal, for example. So one thing that's important is, so most transgender men who are planning surgery have a hysterectomy, and that's usually separate from the gender-affirming pelvic surgery, although it can be done at the same time. Yeah, I think that's really good intel. I mean, I'm a cancer doc and, you know, things I think about are screening for prostate cancer in a transgender woman. You know, you don't want to miss, say, ovarian torsion in a transgender male, testicular torsion, screening for cervical cancer, breast cancer. So I think, I mean, what I'm kind of extracting is if it's done appropriately, taking an inventory, recognizing that it's not faux pas to talk about the sex assigned at birth because there could be some medical implications, if you will, is all okay. Yes, absolutely. The one consideration for transgender men, often though, if they have a hysterectomy, you know, now the, the fallopian tubes are usually removed at the time of hysterectomy because of the consideration for ovarian cancer. And it's now believed that ovarian cancer begins in the fallopian tube, but often they will leave an ovary in case for preservation of, in case they want to have children later. So they often will leave one ovary. It's important to know that in the transgender population, if they have a bilateral salpingo ophorectomy, they can't stop testosterone, right? Because then you're going to throw someone in, they'll end up with no hormones and they can end up having poor bone health, right? And the same goes for transgender men. If you remove the testicles, they must be on estrogen. Because again, you can put them in basically like a menopause and then they end up having risks of osteopenia down the road. Totally. It makes sense. I mean, androgen deprivation therapy, we have them see our bone health colleagues. I can absolutely see that. And another thought that occurred to me is probably worthwhile to get a reproductive endocrinologist, REI doctor, infertility specialist to discuss 
you know, sperm banking, collection of eggs and freezing and so forth in the event that, you know, in the standard male-female coitus way that they're likely not to be able to have biological children. Is that a part of the process? Definitely. And and you often want to start it before, before you do want to start it before hormonal therapy begins. It's tricky too in the adolescent because you're like, well, if we put you on these hormones, you know, you might not be able to have children later. And you're talking to like a 16 year old and they're like, what? So it's tricky because some of them are like, I have no interest. And I had no interest in having kids when I was a, a teenager myself. Right. So, so those are some of the considerations to take into account because ideally you want to our own colleague, Dr. Shea Patel in our men's health center will they cryopreserve sperm quite often for preservation. You know, one thing to consider if you haven't already thought about it, Jen, in, in your research, Jim, there's data from, you know, say like the Castrati, the Italian singers that they would barely ever develop prostate cancer. And there was actually, you know, there's certain population, I think either in Japan or China, where people would be castrate prior to puberty and the incidence of prostate cancer is extremely low. You know, maybe to look at if there are kind of population-based databases that you can cross-link with certain incidences of disease might be interesting. And, you know, of course, on the transgender male side, you know, the, the ones that kind of stick out would be, of course, um, you know, endometrial cancers, ovarian cancers, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And we know very little. We think it is, like you talked about, it's likely rare because of the feminizing hormones. But does it develop into, let's say, a hormone refractory type of cancer if they get it, right? And we don't know if, you know, when people undergo mastectomy for transgender men, it's not a cancer operation. You're not taking lymph nodes, for example. There aren't really guidelines around that. So, and we need, you know, I think guidelines are important, even if it ends up being you don't need to screen to the same degree. I think it's still important that we have some kind of screening guidelines established. So you talked a little bit about adolescence, and I imagine that, you know, this kind of really interfaces with what's permissible from like a medical legal perspective. Is there an earliest age or does it vary state by state where you can intervene, if you will, whether that's hormonal or surgical, however you want to call it, more so than counseling? So for hormonal therapy, and this is going by rating children's criteria, but they require two parents to consent. So it, there is parental consent needed until age of majority, which in California is 18. And age of majority or 18 is also the age in which they can have what's called bottom surgery or gender affirming pelvic surgery, which includes orchiectomy. But it, it's interesting because in, in Oregon, age of majority is younger. And so they can have surgery earlier. But usually I think, and I trained at OHSU with a great team there, and they have a whole a multidisciplinary team that goes into helping with decision making. So having a, you know, there can be a very mature 16 year old who could have pelvic surgery, for example. But in California, and I think, you know, it's considered age of majority before you can have bottom surgery. And at least for hormonal therapy, it usually does require both parents to consent. And, and that can be tricky because some maybe one parent's not supportive, but it's amazing to see how many parents, you know, they come around when they realize that, you know, I think parents, we just want our kids to be happy. And it's amazing to see parents come around and support their transition. 
Yeah, a couple of comments. I mean, my understanding is that there are actual guidelines, best practice guidelines from the Endocrine Society, WPATH, as you mentioned, American Academy of Pediatrics, American Psychiatric Association. And it's really not up to a medical provider to be paternalistic about this, that you're too young. This doesn't make sense. You know, you need to wait a little bit because I get the sense that, you know, maybe a analogy would be like abortion clinics, that there could be political pressures. There could be a political environment where developing a transgender program is not going to be supported, whatever that means. I mean, we've definitely seen programs that started like in the military and then were actually shut down because of political climate and leadership, for example. That's interesting. I think when you look at a person who is seeking gender-affirming care, it's for themselves. No one else is harmed. They're helping themselves. And I think what's so important is that they will often seek care. And before we started having programs that in the United States, programs developed much more rapidly after we had the Affordable Care Act that included the stipulation that there cannot be discrimination based on gender. And from that, these surgeries and care for transgender individuals became more, not universally, but more heading towards more coverage from an insurance perspective. But before that, patients were going out of the to have care. And what we see is, and, and even in, in our practice, where there these surgeries often have high complication rates. And I think that's because they're, you know, we're in the process of making them better. But I think it's so important that if we don't support the care, then patients will continue to get inadequate care. And that I think is much more costly to society than giving good care, having good outcomes. And I think we as a field in the gender affirming surgery field, you know, there's people who want the best for the patients, of course. I mean, that's what we we all want is we want the best care for our patients. But I think it's, we really need to have these surgeries optimized and all these, you know, questions about hormones need to be optimized. And the more care we provide, the better we're going to get and the lower the complications patients will have. And I think that's really important. That totally resonates. I vividly recall at my previous institution, a transgender woman that came to see me and had actually performed bilateral orchiectomies on herself after watching a YouTube video and attempted to give herself a perineal urethrostomy. Oh, God. And she had excruciating bilateral pelvic pain. And I did a completion spermatic cord removal. And thankfully, that resolved her bilateral groin pain. But it Definitely left an impression that people are going to go to great lengths. And you talk about suboptimal care. I think doing an orchiectomy on yourself while watching a video squarely kind of qualifies. Yikes. A little bit about the about the physical exam. So you meant, you know, clearly it could be sensitive. Maybe there's a history of abuse. Some, some of the things that I came across, and I'd love to hear your, your input, is involving the patient in their exam, whether that's exposure, you know, just being very straightforward with what you're about to do, performing the exam in the gender preferred position, like not doing a exam on a transgender woman while they're standing and, you know, vice versa, having chaperones present, using appropriate anatomical language. Can you comment on some of those, please, Jen? Yeah, I think. And I trained with Marcy Bowers and went to her clinic and she's in San Francisco and would put women in stirrups 
And I think that's the most affirming, I think, for a transgender woman. You know, it's funny because initially I thought, well, let's make the exam sort of fast to have them stand up. But it is more affirming to have them lie down, probably meet them first, then have them get changed and then go back and do the exam. Now, for transgender men, a proportion of them have a lot of dysphoria from having an exam of the, the vaginal canal. And I think it's important. I don't usually, there's usually often not a need, especially in urology, if we're planning gender affirming surgery, you don't really need to examine the canal. We really just need to see how well the clitoris has responded to therapy. So it's almost more of an external exam. There's great gynecologists who are kind of specialists in transgender care. For example, pap smears, because often that can be very dysphoria producing for a transgender man to have to have a lot of those exams. And so often, I don't mean to be a name dropper, but I I, I trained with uh, Ming Chen and he, he often says, I don't usually do an exam before surgery. You, you don't often, it doesn't really always even change what you're doing when you're doing like a phalloplasty or a hematoidioplasty. So I'm guessing that many patients seeking gender affirming care are traveling to high volume centers, centers of excellence, and then they're coming back to wherever they live. And at some point they may be establishing care with a urologist. And what are some of the common things a urologist not specializing in transgender medicine might see, you know, whether that's postoperative complications and then maybe as an extension, what are things that a general urologist may be comfortable with as it pertains to transgender care, orchiectomy, testosterone supplementation, and things along those lines? Like I personally will, if I have a patient who's had surgery elsewhere, I call the surgeon, I talk to them, and if, if they need revision surgery, I'll make sure that the surgeon is like, they need a revision there. Are you all right if I perform the revision surgery? And, and so I think it's important to, you know, I like to be in touch with that, the original surgeon. And I welcome patients who have had surgery elsewhere. They tend to be, it's not the word shunned, but many doctors are like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't know how to deal with that. We often, if we're not comfortable with something as providers, we tend to not care for it. But these patients really need us. And I encourage urologists to be willing to see that patient. So transgender men who have had metoidioplasty or phalloplasty the worst scenario, I think, for them is a stricture. And, you know, a phalloplasty has, you have the native urethra proximally, a urethra made of a combination of either buccal graft or just vaginal flaps, which is the pars fixa. And then they have the pendulous urethra. And at both of those junctions, there could be stricture. And so if someone's not comfortable, but the patient's in an emergency situation, one option is to bring the, put them to sleep, do a cystoscopy, try to get a little catheter in. Often it could be a very small catheter. And if not, they might need a suprapubic catheter. And so that's probably what you'll see with after phalloplasty. Metoidioplasty, there's no phallus. That, uh, metoidioplasty is elongation of the clitoris and then um, recreating uh, a urethra from vaginal wall flaps, often combined with buccal graft, depending on the technique. And they could have stricturing as well. And so if someone's not comfortable, they could always have a suprapubic catheter. But or you can try to perform cystoscopy. And that's where maybe giving the surgeon a call just to get some, uh, you know, a little more detail would be helpful. 
For vaginoplasty, I think there's sort of two main issues that we see in sort of an emergency post-operative setting. One could be a stricture at the urethra, which is usually just a bulbar stricture. It looks almost like a perineal urethrostomy, and usually a gentle dilation will reveal a normal bulbar urethra proximally. Again, if you're not comfortable or if it's obliterated, you can just place a suprapubic catheter. And then they can have what's called vaginal stenosis, and the, the vaginal opening can narrow. And if that becomes too narrow, they can develop. We've seen sort of where you, you can develop almost like the vaginal canal inside. You can develop like a mucosal or um, where you have purulent material building. So that sort of scenario could require a small dilation to be able to just open any canal. But usually that's not as much of an emergency situation unless it's obliterated and there's actually like an infection. But I think the bigger, the more acute issues would be that of a stricture. And I think most, most urologists can, be, uh, you know, I would say all urologists are able to put in a suprapubic catheter if necessary. Yeah, that's good intel. And I think, you know, as we, as a urology community get more comfortable with taking care of transgender patients, it's going to be a little bit, I think that opening the lines of communications with maybe their initial reconstructive surgeon seems like a very obvious thing to do. And then, you know, common things, hematuria, kidney stones, just kind of knowing the anatomy, understanding what took place is also likely beneficial. So we can you know, do the hematuria evaluations if there's incontinence and so forth, or, you know, bladder tumors, et cetera, be um, comfortable kind of taking care of those. Um, no, that's, that's fantastic. And I mean, I personally, let's just say if for some reason, a patient interested in gender affirming surgery in my hands, probably the extent of what I would feel comfortable with is doing an orchiectomy and, you know, making sure that they're kind of plugged in from a hormone supplementation perspective. Is it reasonable to assume that many urologists could perform an orchiectomy and for a transgender female and uh, be a part of testosterone supplementation for a transgender male? Absolutely. And in, in what our clinic, we have providers who perform testosterone pellets for trans men and cis men. And I absolutely, and the orchiectomy, you know, it's often midline small incision like we do for you know, obviously not a cancer archaeotomy, but a simple archaeotomy. Absolutely. I think that's definitely in the wheelhouse of a urologist. That's so funny. You know, I'm, as you know, I'm kind of a cancer guy and testicular cancer is my area of uh, <laughs> expertise. And I was literally thinking inguinal archaeotomies. Um, well, yeah, but I'll, I'll be sure to phone a friend before I jump into any of that. <laughs> exactly. So this is uh, incredibly enlightening to me. And I've certainly learned a lot prepping. And I mean, the kind of expertise required, hats off to you to spend time with people that do this. I, you know, I know Daniel Doogie and, you know, he's, he's been just a, a great friend, I think a great advocate for the transgender community. But I actually very much respected the people in my previous institution that they weren't ready to offer services because they hadn't gone and done many fellowships proper dedicated training. And I get the sense that this is something that you don't want to dabble in, that you need to have the appropriate education, the multidisciplinary teams. And just because you do X, Y, and Z with some type of regularity, it's probably not in the patient's best interest to just kind of give it a shot. Because like so many things surgical that your first go at, it's probably going to do the best. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But I'll, to be honest, you know, I was discouraged a bit 
and said, well, you're, I trained with George Webster in 2003, 2004. So that was before male and female recon split off. So I have a strong reconstructive background, but people were like, well, what are you doing? Like, why are you, you know, why are you doing this? You're an FPMRS surgeon. You don't know how to do these surgeries. And I, I had to kind of have some faith in myself and say, you know, I, um, I have a strong reconstructive background and I've done bits and pieces of all these surgeries and then take the extra time to train. And then once I started seeing that this is going really well and we're having good outcomes, that I think it's important that I, I think the desire to do a good job is very important. And how whether you do a specialized fellowship in gender affirming surgery, and there's not a lot of them yet, or you do sabbaticals like a lot of us have done, and you have a strong reconstructive background, I think you can help provide care and provide good care for these patients. And so I think for me, it was, I definitely had a passion for it. Uh, I felt like the surgeries were definitely within my reconstructive skill set. And I was seeing surgeries that were not going well. And I felt like I know I could help this population. And so it's been very rewarding being able to, you know, help someone who's had surgery who can't pee with the suprapubic catheter and we can reconstruct the urethra and help someone enjoy the outcome of their surgery, right? I think that's very, very rewarding. Absolutely. And have you noticed, have you been the target of any kind of political pressure or anti-gender affirming directed activities? Fortunately, no. I think because the process is multidisciplinary, there's not like, I think where you might see more of that could be at an adolescent gender affirming center. But I think because there's so many disciplines that take care of these patients, that maybe that that hasn't been a target, luckily, and hopefully we won't be a target. I think society is really changing and becoming more accepting. So I'd like to see that that not be happening. Of course. Are there any resources that you found to be particularly good for patients, for providers that you generally will direct your patients towards? I think a lot of sites will have patient information. So I've, the internet's been a really great source. And patients, transgender individuals are often very active on social media. And so there's forums on Facebook and even on Twitter. I, have a, I follow a lot of patients on Twitter and I learn a lot from them. But I, I found a lot of great resources on the internet, like for patient material, like just information about this is a phalloplasty. This is a metoideoplasty. And there's other options. Like some patients, if they don't necessarily want a vaginal canal, they can have a vulvoplasty, which is very feminizing. They just, if they don't think they're going to have sexual activity, they don't need to have an actual canal. And then they don't have to dilate. And then they don't have, the complication rate's a little bit lower. So I think, you know, there's a lot of options that patients and a lot of information out there that, you know, patients can access. Yeah, I came across a, a few that I thought were quite good. Fenway Health seemed to be a really nice, uh, have a nice website. TransArc, I think, is an academic society. Not to suggest that there's not other excellent ones out there, but those were two that I, I kind of came across. Yeah, those are both great resources. 
Well, Jen, I know we're kind of coming on an hour now, and I feel like we could probably keep going for another few. But any kind of thoughts that you'd like to share with our listenership, you know, as it pertains to transgender care, reaffirming surgery before we wind it down? I think having a desire to care for these patients and help people is is really the most important element of care. Often, you know, if we might mess up a name or a pronoun, it's okay to say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, and, and move on. And and most patients are like, no, no, no problem. It's, I think I find the patient population to be very grateful. And the other thing and that's important is that, you know, providing good trans care really helps us provide sensitive care for all populations, not just the, the transgender population. And so I think as we, we're getting better at caring for patients, and I think soon we'll have care available so patients don't have to have such a problem with access. And that's going to be, I think, a great, you know, having them not have to travel for surgery, I think it's going to be really nice for, for patients and for providers. And maybe I would say for, from my perspective and, you know, maybe my advice to providers that don't provide a lot of transgender care, that there's this idea that maybe it's so unfamiliar, so foreign, and you're going to say the wrong thing or hurt somebody's feelings. Or I even came across this concept of transgender broken arm, where like, as you described, when providers are unfamiliar, they just say, hey, I'm not going to take care of you, or they're not able to take the best care of you. But, you know, with a little bit of time investment, you know, just read a little bit about it, familiarize yourself with some of the terminology recognize that as long as the patient feels that, you know, you're here for them and you're doing your best and you want to make this a, a good positive experience that they're going to know that. And, you know, maybe even little slip ups will, will not be poorly received. Absolutely. Well, Jen, always a pleasure to spend some time with you. You know, thanks again for what you're doing for the community and for providers as well. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the next phase of this relatively newer field looks like. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Deng. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.